This is Executive Recruiter 2.0, where we explore the world of executive search powered by Thrive TRM. The right people are out there, and Thrive TRM's collaborative real-time talent relationship management software helps search agencies, in-house recruiters, and VCP firms find them faster. Here's your host, Reed Flesher. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Executive Recruiter 2.0. I'm your host, Reed Flesher, President and Head of Product at Thrive. Today, we're joined once again by Robert Crowder, Managing Director of Chapman Farrell. Robert, welcome back. Thank you very much. If you missed last episode, we talked about what it takes to be a successful executive recruiter. And today, I want to talk to Robert about how behavioral economics is impacting executive search. So let's get started. What is behavioral economics? Behavioral economics is a subclass of economics that really studies how people are predictably irrational in their behavior. Uh, Kahneman and Tversky are two scientists that uh, had won Nobel Prizes that really kind of demonstrated that people really rely on unconscious bias and rules of thumb to navigate the world, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. Can you give us some examples? A couple of examples of some of the behavioral economics things that they've kind of talked about that are, that are pretty famous are priming, framing, and a decoy effect. Priming is an example that we as human beings can sometimes get a stimulus that is completely unrelated to something that's going on that still impacts us in some of our decision-making. One example of that was a study that was done that people were given their Uh, the last four digits of their social security number, which is just a randomly generated number. And they were given this information just to see it, and then they were moved into another room where they actually wound up having to bid in an auction on items. And the study demonstrated that those that had the higher social security numbers actually were willing to bid more during the auction process. Again, those two things being unrelated, but because I saw that number, because it was in my subconscious, it did impact the way that I behaved. Another example would be around framing. There are certain things that a rational person would realize that whether I frame it one way or another, it's the same outcome. One example of that might be that you have a 10% chance of survival if, in fact, if you take this medication. The other way of stating the same thing as far as uh, statistical odds is you have a 90% chance of dying if you don't take the medication. So when you think about whether or not I'm willing to take a risk or not can change sometimes based upon the way that it's framed. And the decoy effect is another example where we have a hard time making choices uh, without having a comparison point. So with a decoy effect, one example is... If I was to take somebody and show them two colonial houses, one was a little bit better than the other colonial house, and and showed them also a ranch house, I could almost be assured that they would take the better-looking colonial house because there was a point of comparison versus taking the ranch. So how does behavioral economics play a role in the employment value proposition? Because I think most people would assume that ultimately it just does come down to money. So the standard economic theory would actually indicate that money would be the greatest driver for people, but people are actually less motivated by money than previously believed. As long as somebody feels that they're fairly paid, more money doesn't really motivate somebody. It can actually demotivate 
somebody. Uh, social contracts are a lot more powerful than economic contracts. One example might wind up being that if, in fact, you as my friend, uh, I asked you to come help me move my couch, you're more inclined just because you're my friend to come help me move the couch than if I were to come over to you and say, hey, I'll give you 10 bucks to help me move my couch. When we transition from that social relationship to an economic relationship, it doesn't have as much draw, it doesn't have as much power as far as getting you to do something. So studies have demonstrated that sometimes peer pressure and the social contracts that we have with one another are significantly more powerful than those of an economic um, value. There's a book that was put out by Daniel Pink that talks uh, about motivation and getting people motivated, and it's called Drive. And he really kind of points out that there are um, intrinsic motivators that are much, much more powerful to get people engaged in and want to give their discretionary effort. One of those is around autonomy, um, having autonomy about the task, you know, what it is that you're doing, um, having autonomy around the time, about when you do it, having autonomy around the technique, about how you do it, and having autonomy around the team, about who you do it with. So autonomy and having the autonomy to make that choice about those particular items is a great driver. He also indicated that the pursuit of mastery, you know, striving after something to just get it better and better and better. There's something about the strive or the goal for perfection that you just can't achieve that puts you in this zone of flow, he refers to, where you lose track of time and you're just embedded in trying to get better and better and better at a particular item. And again, this pursuit of mastery as far as a mindset is another thing that is an intrinsic motivator that is very powerful. And then the final thing he talks about is being part of a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. So being a part of this bigger thing that you could never, ever accomplish on your own, but with a team or a group of people, you're accomplishing this, this higher purpose that you just would not be able to achieve by yourself also is a powerful motivating factor. So when I think about employment value propositions, value propositions that wind up providing an individual with the autonomy, the mastery, and the purpose is going to be significantly more of a draw than just money. So you talked about behavioral economics being slightly different than economics. And what are, what are some of the main reasons why they're different? So studies have demonstrated that there's probably three major themes that run through behavioral economics. One of those is this concept of bounded rationality. We are not uh, rational to the point where we will find all relevant information, study it, thoroughly understand it, and then make a logical choice. We sometimes take shortcuts in the way that we think. So our rationality is not unlimited. It happens to be bounded. And that's part of the reason why we make some bad choices. The other thing is around having bounded willpower. Sometimes the very thing that we want to do in the long term, we don't do in the short term. So people want to stop smoking. People want to exercise more. People want to lose weight. People really want these things, but the decision I make today is sometimes not consistent with the decision that I want for the long term. So again, we as human beings have bounded willpower and our ability to be able to have the self-discipline to do the very thing that's in our best interest. And then the final thing is, is that 
Uh, behavioral economics recognizes that human motivation is not always purely self-interest. We are willing to do things that are sometimes contrary to our own self-preservation, where economics thinks that we make all these choices just based upon what's in our best interest. So when you have somebody that's willing to jump in front of a car for their child or die for a friend in a war or demonstrating courage in that way, there are many times that we as human beings will do things that are not necessarily in our best interest where old economic theory would say that we would only do what was in our best interest. Can you uh, give us some relevant examples of how this plays out in executive search? Sure. When I think about bounded rationality and the fact that we don't always look at all information and we use these rules of thumb and heuristics, is we have a tendency to think that we're successful. And you know, I used to tell some of my recruiters that there are three people that you need to wind up having on a slate in order to make sure you get a deal. One of those is the best person you could possibly find. One of them is the best person that you can find locally. And the third one is somebody that looks like the hiring manager. And the reality is if you have all three of those candidates, you'll probably make the deal. And the, the bounded rationality is, is that we have been successful, or so we think. And so finding somebody that looks very similar to us is very, very attractive. You know, so we're not actually being unbiased in the way that we sometimes evaluate talent and look at talent. We look at people that are similar to us, that look like us, that have had the same kind of background as we've had. And that is one of the cognitive biases in regards to rationality that I probably see play out very frequently. When I think about bounded willpower, one of the things that we tend to do, again, as human beings is, is we tend to discount the future. So in, in a very economic standpoint, that if the, the benefit that I'm looking at is greater than the cost, then I would wind up doing that. When you think about something as simple as doing a, a good job description and making sure that the outcomes are something that have been validated by everybody that's going to be part of the interview process, the evaluation process, and people that have the power to veto a decision, sometimes in our rush to try to move forward, we wind up skipping that step because we're not thinking three months out. We think that three months out, the pain of having to go back and redo this again isn't that bad because it's out in the future. So one of the ways that you try to combat that is you try to either put everything into the future or you bring everything into the present. And one way of doing that is even taking a look at, so let's just pretend that we're three months into this. We've already spent 90 days doing this. And if we were to have to go back and redo this again, how painful is that? All of a sudden, to spend an extra hour to make sure that we've got this validated by the rest of the team that we're all on the same page, now when I do that economic benefit, that doesn't, that doesn't seem unreasonable that I would spend that time. But if I leave those two things separated where I'm thinking about today and tomorrow, tomorrow is always less of a cost than my benefit today. But that's an example of why sometimes our willpower is not always where it needs to be because we continue to discount the future. So you've described some of these biases. Now, how do you combat these in the executive search process? So there, there are a number of ways that you can combat some of these things. Some of them you might not be able to, and you might need to use them to your advantage to be able to help counterbalance some of the biases that are there. But 
biases usually wind up manifesting themselves when we're thinking fast. You know, that, that was a term that Kahneman and Tversky wound up using about thinking fast and thinking slow. And there's a, a book out there that talks about that. But they have a tendency to happen when we're thinking fast and we're using these rules of thumb. Sometimes we just need to slow down the thinking. You know, again, by having a hiring manager actually define and prioritize the outcomes that are expected from a hiring decision and getting that validated by all the key stakeholders, it changes uh, the evaluation process. It changes the mindset. It starts to slow down the way people are thinking. So they're less likely to say, oh, I like the guy. Oh, you know, she seemed like she had some background. She seemed really easy to talk with. I, I, think that, I think that she'll be successful, unconsciously thinking, because she's so much like I am. Um, but again, by making sure that we have these prioritized outcomes, it forces you to think about how you articulate that person's behavior in light of these very objective standards. So it does wind up slowing down the thinking and making it a little bit more cognitive. That's one example of slowing down the thinking, thinking that you can use to be able to help. Another one is to manage the debrief sessions. So when everybody gets together to talk about the candidates, to be able to come up with you know, this shared outcome on how we need to move forward with the candidate, one, one study actually demonstrated they lined up all these people and they had two lines. One line was clearly shorter than the other line. And the person who was being tested was the last person in the line. So as they went through the line, they had everybody say that the lines were the same length. So when it got to the last person who was actually being tested, because all of these other 10 people said that the lines were the same length, this person doubted that their observation was valid. So they went along with what the majority of the people said and said, yeah, those lines are the same. When they did the test and they just had just even one person say something different, even though it wasn't accurate, the person at the end had more courage to share their perspective just because one person said something different. So if you think about the insights that are gained by that when you think about a debrief session, sometimes your role may be to be the dissonant voice. If everybody says, boy, that person really seemed like you know, they were a really analytical thinker. You know, the question you might ask just to make sure that if somebody saw something different that it's safe for them to say it is, did anybody get any sense that maybe they were slow to make decisions? Every strength has its own inherent weakness. And at least voicing that, even if everybody winds up agreeing later, you actually made it safer for that dissonant voice to be able to be heard just by saying something that made it safe in that environment. So there are things that you can apply even in a debrief session to be able to make sure that there's less bias versus more bias. Another thing is, is that whoever the leader is, don't let them speak first <laughs> because politically people sometimes will just align with the leader. That's what that person said. And you know what? Yep, I agree. Yep, I agree. Don't let that person speak first because it can wind up swaying that whole discussion and not getting real collaborative dialogue that's going. And then the other thing is, is that when you think about the whole decoy effect, knowing that if we have two people that look very close to each other and we have somebody that's so different, the tendency is to pick the better of the two that look similar. And realizing that if diversity is one of your goals, to just have one woman or one minority candidate, when the rest of them are different than that, you've almost set yourself up 
in a bad way to not have success in being able to move that initiative. You need to make sure that you have a few more comparative points to try to mitigate some of the risks that might come if there's only one when you have others that are a little bit more similar because that'll just kill your, your initiative to be able to try to change that particular thing. All right. Um, another thing is, is sometimes understanding that priming being one of those things that we can actually get something top of somebody's mind. Um, one example is, is that if we start to talk about, you know, if it's an African-American, for instance, and you start talking about somebody that's well-liked or well-esteemed, maybe a Martin Luther King, prior to your African-American candidate coming in, it actually winds up leveling the playing floor. Because if the person just happened to watch the news where all I see and all I've seen is, you know, a negative experience with this particular group, they enter that interview with that kind of mindset, again, realizing that we are easily primed, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. And sometimes being able to do something as, similar, as simple as raising up somebody that might be common or well-liked in a particular category, whether it's women, whether it's minority or what have you with hiring managers, it helps just to make sure that it's starting off on a, uh, a, balanced, a balanced foot. Um, another thing to be aware of is decision fatigue. Depending upon the day, the time of day that your candidate comes in can actually have an impact on how that person is viewed um, as a result of just timing. Um, just before lunch and at the end of the day tend to be the worst times where judges wind up finding people guilty <laughs> more frequently at those times and have less tolerance to be able to actually think through um, in rational ways about it. They just make emotional decisions based upon the fatigue. So again, thinking about what time you have candidates coming in, how much time you wind up having them spend on a day can also make a difference in how they're perceived. So, Robert, I just want to thank you for your time today and the insights you shared with our audience and also for being a customer of Thrive TRM. Uh, we wish you uh, much success. I wish you much success as well. Thank you.